0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, November the 15th, 2023. It is currently 6.39 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live not from Victory Baptist Church, located in the middle of nowhere. I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio, located, well, still in the middle of nowhere, but but we'll call it Abilene, Texas. I guess it's somewhere, right? I mean, it's it's... Compared to where the church is located, it is definitely more of a somewhere. But I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, this Wednesday evening. Typically, I'd be standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church, but tonight things didn't work out exactly that way. But we are very grateful. We are very thankful. It's that season. We're supposed to be thankful and grateful, you know, only in November. Okay, no, no, we're supposed to be grateful and thankful all the time, but I am grateful and I am thankful that no matter what is happening because of technology i can push one button and go live and then people can get a notification on their phone on their tablet and be like and tune in on their computer multiple different ways and listen to us as we broadcast talking about doctrine theology doing bible study preaching whatever the case uh, whatever the case may be i am very grateful for that and so on this wednesday evening even though things didn't go quite according to plan we can still accomplish something. Now, I'm a little conflicted here, right? Because it's Wednesday evening, I should proceed with something that would that I would probably be doing at the church. However, I I have to finish what I started earlier today. So do I just forget what I did earlier today and use this hour to do something different? Or do I use this hour to continue what we've done earlier today? And I, I know this may be a bad decision, but... I'm going to continue with what we did earlier today. That's what I'm going to do. We started a sermon review uh, earlier today. It's a sermon that someone sent me via email, and it's a sermon that very much, and at least on the surface, seems to fit perfectly with our ongoing series on un- the understanding the proper distinction between law and gospel, understanding law and gospel, where we have spent well over a 100 hours working on this proper distinction. We've been utilizing the book, God's Knowing God's Yes by C.F.W. Walther. We've also been using uh, Issues ETC, a, uh, a Lutheran radio program slash podcast where they've been talking about the proper distinction between law and gospel. We've been doing lots of work trying to make sure we understand that. And we've been putting forth the idea that a proper distinction between law and gospel is absolutely critical to understanding the bible with if you don't understand the proper distinction between law and gospel the bible remains a closed book you can't truly understand it and it's going to lead to very very serious very serious theological problems in fact what you're ulti- ultimately going to end up with you're going to end up with law masquerading as gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so we've put forth this idea of a law gospel hermeneutic, that the proper way to understand the Bible is to understand the proper distinction between law and gospel. So we've talked about that. Well, someone sent me a sermon that's very critical of that hermeneutic. In fact, they say that hermeneutic will lead you down a dark alley, a blind alley. In other words, you're going to end up theologically blind and confused. So I think if you don't have the proper distinction between law and gospel, you end up down that blind alley and you're not going to be able to see. And you can ultimately destroy the gospel. They think that if you follow the hermeneutic that I'm, I'm promoting that you'll end up down that blind alley and end up theologically confused. So radically different approaches, but you've heard a hundred plus hours of me trying to put, to put forth my idea. So now we're hearing a sermon that calls everything I've said into question. And that's great. I like you to hear both sides. Now, what's frustrating with the sermon is their argument against the law and gospel hermeneutic amounts to nothing more than a a a straw man that literally almost demonstrates a lack of of well put it this way they've definitely not engaged the actual material of those who pr- who present the law gospel hermeneutic because you would think anyone who's going to criticize it would have to have engaged the writings of CFW Walther you would you you would i don't know how else you could criticize it CFW Walther is kind of the the person. So, but clearly their straw man approach is, is just very frustrating. So we spent 85 minutes, 86 minutes this afternoon. And so tonight we press forward and we try to finish it. So let me just do a quick review. In case you were not here earlier today, you definitely need to go back and listen to part one. You must. But before you do that, if you're going to listen to part two, let me try to get you caught up. We are reviewing a sermon, again, that someone sent to me. Remember the rules. During sermon reviews, I do not listen to the sermon first. It's not that I'm out there looking around for some sermon that I want to criticize or some sermon that I want to attack. I just choose a random sermon. Typically, I choose a random sermon or sometimes listeners send me a random sermon. I don't listen to it first. I just start playing it and then my reaction is in real time. Sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing, because sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what to say. What was that? And we kind of end with a very underwhelming, you know, sermon review. Sometimes it's amazing what we discover, but it's always a, a, a an adventure into the unknown, which I think really kind of characterizes this this podcast because I like it to be much more raw and organic than produced and, and planned I, I, and polished. I like it to be much more real. So I guess it does fit the overall vibe that I shoot for, for this podcast. But the sermon that was sent to me was a sermon by Doug Wilson or Douglas Wilson. You may know the name. Douglas Wilson. Uh, Douglas Wilson, very much associated with Moscow, Idaho, right? Right. Probably know that. Douglas Wilson is also very much associated with the federal vision. And in part one, I reviewed the basic principles, the basic tenets of federal vision theology. And immediately I thought, okay, if this sermon has to do with law and gospel or at least criticizing law and gospel it's very important for us to understand federal vision going into it because that may explain some of the criticism so we covered that in part one i'm not going to go back and go through all of that he in the sermon he criticizes the law and gospel hermeneutic as i've already well established and he his basic arguments go something like this well wait a minute When you try to distinguish law and gospel, it's not always easy. I mean, how are you going to color code this? If you're going to color code this, it's going to get confusing because in Exodus chapter 20, which you would think is a law passage in verse two, that's clearly a gospel passage. Then starting in verse three, it's law. Seemingly that because one verse is gospel and one verse is law, supposedly the hermeneutic doesn't work. I don't understand that argument. No, all you have to do to be able to draw the distinction is when you read a passage that clearly speaks of what God has done, is doing, or will do for us, that's gospel. And whenever the passage says, you must do this, you must do this, or you must do this, that is law. It's not complicated. But he made a big deal like, so in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, that's about what God did for them. That's clearly gospel. Then the next verses are all law. How do you color code it? And I'm like, you make verse two, one color, and you make verse three, four, five, six, and following a different color. It, it's not complicated. I like, because it, it just, it's, it was the weirdest argument I've ever heard. Like, that's your number one argument is because it makes the Bible difficult to color code. I've, I don't think I've ever heard anyone who holds to a law and gospel hermeneutic. <laughs> makes them like, it's difficult. It's difficult to color code. You can take all hermeneutical systems and say, well, color code it. Is this, what genre is this? Is that, is that apocalyptic literature? Is that prophetic literature? Is it historical narrative? Is it poetry? Can poetry be mixed in with historical narrative? Like, wait, could, can um prophecy be uh, put in with historical, like, I bet you that you could you run into the same problems. But for some weird reason because you can't color code the Bible, you have to throw out the law gospel hermeneutic. It was the most bizarre argument I've ever heard. The second argument was a little bit better. Well, in Psalm 19 it says, you know, the law of the Lord is perfect and it converts the soul. See? It converts the soul. That's that's gospel. Well, I would say the law is very much involved in conversion because the law has to condemn you before you can convert you. But the law condemns you before the gospel converts you. But so the law is involved in conversion. But you can also just argue that Psalm 19 is about the word of God and the word of God in its totality. Maybe in a generic way can be referred to God's law. But it's just a reference to God's law, God's word as a, a whole. We could, there's a lot of different ways of looking at that. That one was a, a decent argument. Uh, the third argument is weird. The first one made no sense. The second one we could have to struggle with a little bit, but okay. I think we could work something out. The third one is just makes no sense. Well, lost people hate the gospel. I don't know what that has to do with the law of gospel hermeneutic because the law of gospel hermeneutic teaches you that one of the things you one of the reasons we have to know the proper distinction between law and gospel is because we need to know sometimes you don't present the gospel to someone You present the law. And when someone hates the gospel and hates God, they don't need the gospel. You don't present the gospel to them. You present the law to them until they feel crushed under the weight of the law. Then you present the sweetness of the gospel. So I don't even understand how that was a criticism. It was bizarre. It was weird. And it accomplished literally nothing. But he spent a lot of time working on it. So then he said, hey, hey, there is a distinction between law and gospel. And that distinction occurs inside the human heart. And this is how it works. If a person is lost, they hate the law. They hate the gospel. If a person is saved, they love the law and they love the gospel. And immediately I called this into question, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's plenty of saved people who there's times they read the law. And instead of being filled with love for it or gratitude for it, they're filled with shame, conviction, and they're broken because that same law. Condemns saved people just as much as it does law people or, or, or uh, lost people, because saved people read the law and guess what? We see that we fall short of it day in, day out, day in, day out. In fact, we we may strive for it, we may want to obey it, but we're never going to obey it. We cannot obey it. We still have a sinful nature and we still fall short. So there, there are times. Yes, we may, there may be a part of us that loves the law. We, because it's God's word, but there's other times if we're even remotely honest with ourselves, we, 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 oh, it bothers us. It convicts us. So I don't know how you can say, say, people will love it. Now say people sometimes will love it, but there's plenty of times that they're going to struggle with it and almost resent it at times because it condemns us over and over and over. The law condemns saved and the lost because we can't keep it. And guess what? The gospel is what we love because it shows us that Christ has kept the law for us. But he tries to make this distinction and he clearly seems to imply that what happens in salvation is that our sinful heart is removed. We now received a heart of flesh. Now we love the law. We love God's law and we obey it. He seems to almost... And not just imply it, maybe almost explicitly state or at least clearly indicate that if you're saved, you can keep the law now. So that's why you love it, because you can keep it, which is just radically, which is just absolutely untrue. It's just radically a falsehood. We never keep the law, even as saved people. And if you think you do, you're delusional. You don't love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. And let me just give you one clear one. Be ye holy as he is holy. You don't keep that, even as a saved person. So whenever I see that law, there's one part of me that may love it because it's God's word. But there's another part of me that goes, I'm never, I am just so never going to get there. And all I can do is just... And it says, pound on my chest and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I am unworthy of anything. But he seems to imply that you can keep it. And that's kind of where we stop. That's 14 minutes of review, but that gets us very close. And I apologize if at some point when I was saying gospel, I meant law. If I was saying law, I meant God. I'm sorry if I confused the terms at any point there. But I was trying to make it through that review as fast as possible. So if there is any confusion, please email me and I will help clarify it if I need to. But I think I did pretty good there. All right. So to me, what's kind of frustrating with the sermon so far, if you were to, if we were to kind of assess where I'm at with the sermon right now, there's a little bit of frustration, right? Cause this is Douglas Wilson, very well known, famous. He's got popularity power, position. He's known for the federal vision. And I thought we were going to get some really profound, unique take on law and gospel. And really, this is just disintegrated into your typical evangelical approach to the subject. The typical evangelical approach goes like this. When you're lost, you don't like the law, you hate the law, and you can't keep the law. But when you become saved, you now love the law and you can keep it. Because once again, it's almost always implied, even if it's not explicitly stated, Even though they may come back and say, no, 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 we didn't mean that. It's always stated in such a way that seems to imply that the old nature is eradicated. You now have a brand new heart. The old heart is gone. So you, and they never bothered to answer this question. Then why isn't all Christians sinless? Well, no, no, you're still going to sin. Well, if the old nature is gone, why are you sinning? Well, it's, it's like muscle memory. Oh, give me a break. After 10 or 15 years, you think you could have a different muscle memory, right? Okay, come on. Um, no, they they can't. They It's like on one end, they almost want to act like we can be perfect, but they want the best of both worlds. Well, you can, almost can be perfect, but no one's going to be perfect. Well, then why can't no one be perfect? Maybe because we still have a sinful nature. Well, then if we still have a sinful nature, so did we get a new heart, but the nature remains the same? So is the nature and the heart separate? These are questions I've been asking for 15 years. You never get definitive answers, but it's really just disintegrated into what you hear every week in American Christianity. You can do it. You can do it. You can keep it. You can obey it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And and yet, all all I have to do is give you one command. Be holy as God is holy. You can't do that. Now, I can do it positionally in Christ. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You can pretend you do it. You don't. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, I go to the same basic scriptures every single time because every single time anyone is even partially honest with themselves will realize, I don't keep it. I don't keep it. Yeah, right. So stop looking to your actions to prove your justification because you were justified by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. And if you're going to look to your sanctification to prove your justification, then your sanctification has to be perfect because God demands for justification, perfection, and you're never going to be it. So guess what you need to look to, to prove your salvation? The righteousness of Christ, which is perfect and is imputed to you by faith alone. There you go. Now, Let's jump back in. He's, he's just now trying. He's, he's still right here. We're in that part of the sermon where he's basically criticizing the law gospel hermeneutic that it doesn't work because you can't color code your Bible. I still don't know where, why that's an argument. You, you, so any hermeneutic that you cannot color code is a hermeneutic that his, literally, if you, if you were to take his supposed brilliant argument and summarize it, a hermeneutic that cannot be color coded, is a hermeneutic that must be rejected. That is the, <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to something so ridiculous because he's not even proven clearly how the long gospel hermeneutic can't be color-coded. All I need to do is find a passage that says this is what God has done, is doing, will do, and find the passage that says this is what you must do. The ones that show what God is doing, has done, is done, and will do, that's gospel. Anyone that tells me what I'm supposed to do is law. That may be the easiest one to color code of all the hermeneutical systems that exist. All right, but let's continue.
1: So what's going on? What is going on here? This tells us, I I believe there is a fundamental law-gospel divide. There is a fundamental law-gospel division. But this tells us that the law-gospel divide is not to be found in the text of Scripture. It is found in the difference between one kind of human heart and another kind of human heart.
0: Okay, so the distinction to law and gospel is not found in the Bible. It's found in the different human hearts. So you find the different human hearts. One heart will show you law. One heart will show you gospel. So as, as the human heart is the absolute discerner of law and gospel, which is just crazy because I I guess, I guess what he's assuming is, see, a lost person has a heart that's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, but a, a saved person, now they don't have a heart like that. They have the perfect heart. They have a good heart. They have a wonderful heart. So guess what? Now the perfect heart will understand law differently than the lost heart, which is just a ridiculous idea. Uh, yeah, oh. And of course, okay, we'll just let him continue. This whole thing drives
1: me crazy. It's found between the the regenerate and the unregenerate. For the regenerate, everything from God is sweeter than the honeycomb. If, If someone's born again, if the Spirit of God has moved in your heart, if the Spirit of God has quickened you, if the Spirit of God has brought you to life, then absolutely everything your loving Father says and does is precious to you. It's great. So, according to him, if
0: you're truly saved everything in scripture everything in scripture has magically is sweeter than the honeycomb now anyone who believes that i'm sorry you 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 that is not even remotely accurate there's plenty of times save people open their bible and go oh no whoa man That, oh, I don't know about that. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say you just came home and your spouse beats you absolutely almost to the point of death. They tell you they have cheated on you that they've taken all the money you had saved in your bank account out and you're never going to get it back, that they've been unfaithful, they hate you, they despise you. And then for your devotions that night, you read, forgive 70 times 7. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Sorry, you're probably not at that moment going to feel that that's sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. Maybe, maybe, You did something today that was very sinful, very ungodly. Maybe you thought it, maybe you engaged in it, maybe you desired it. And then all of a sudden it's around midnight and you open your Bible and you read a passage that speaks directly to what you've done. That may not be sweeter than the honeycomb. That may be convicting. That may be painful. That may be hurtful. It's not always sweeter than the honeycomb. There are times when your life falls apart and you read a scripture about the goodness and mercy of God. You're like, why did this happen? There there can be times when you are maybe a young Christian. Maybe you, you haven't been saved very long and I don't know, your parent ties you up and beats you with a belt buckle or burns, burns you with a curling iron. And then you read scripture about, you know, the goodness of God and God will protect you. And you're like, well, where is God? It's, you may not be sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. To, to, to put such a ridiculous statement. It's just, it's just blatantly not true. As a saved person, there are times the scripture, it bothers us. It convicts us. It humiliates us. It embarrasses us. It makes us feel overwhelmed. There's times we struggle with what to do with it. Don't tell me that, that it's just this clear distinction between a lost person. The Bible is not sweet and they hate it. And, and, but the, but a lost, that's a lost person and a saved person. It's sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. So how do you know the difference between law and gospel? Lost people will see the law as law and law, and uh, lost people will see the law as law and hate it and saved people will see the law, I guess, as gospel and love it. But that is just not, that's not anywhere close to accurate. Our sinful nature reacts to God's word sometimes just like a lost person. And don't say that we don't do that. This would basically be like, well, if I, so if I don't love it, if I, and again, if you, if you truly love God, I mean, just come on. If we truly loved God's word, because that's sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb, that comes from Psalm 19. That comes from Psalm 19. I get, I guess sometimes I get so, frustrated with America. I'm going to just call it American Christianity that just, it almost wants to create a Disney version of Christianity. But let's just take this to the test because he's clearly saying the way you know the difference between law and gospel is the heart. A saved heart will see the law almost like a gospel, right? They're going to love it. They're going to cherish it. Okay, well, let me read Psalm 19 since that's what he's making a reference to here. All right. So uh, this is uh speaking of uh, verse uh, Psalm 19 verse 10. This is all about God's word and it says speaking of God's word, God's judgments, God's law, however it wants to be described, more to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Well, let's not just take the sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb there. Let's take that into its fuller context. So you're telling me that a saved person will love God's word more than money and more than food. Well, then I want to see you dedicate more of your life to learning, knowing, and memorizing Scripture than you do in working for money. And I want to see you spend more of your life eating of God's word than you do physical food. And I know that that's an absolute absurdity because people work, pursue money, think about money and manage money and eat physical food far more than they ever do focusing on the word of God. So I guess then nobody is saved. It's so easy to sing that. More to be desired of they than gold, than, than the honey, than the honey. It's, 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 it's so easy to sing it. But give me a break. Uh, yes, God's word should be desired more than those things. The reality is we don't because we love self. We love food. We love money. We love possessions. We love sleep. We love everything more than God's word and don't act like it's different. It's the reality. If, if, it, if that was really true, we would forsake everything, sell everything we have, and basically live in a monastery where we could spend every day studying. And reading God's word, and nobody does that. Yet we claim the difference between law and gospel is the heart. You see, the saved heart, they're going to love everything from God's word, they're going to desire it. It's going to be sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. Give me a break. Give me a break. You, 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 I bet you in any given day, more time is dedicated to physical food than it is spiritual food. You know it. I know it. So why do we, why do we say these things? The church loves to say these very like dogmatic assertions about how it is when everyone knows that's not how it is.
1: It's undeserved grace. Oh, boy, you look at the laws. Oh, boy, now he's telling me how I should live. Oh, boy, now he's telling me how I I can love him more adequately. Now he's telling me how I can love my neighbor. And look at this, more information. Oh, good. Law. Yay. (laughs) Right?
0: Yeah, that's what we do. Yay, more law. Yay, more law. Give me more law, Jesus. Give me more law. We don't do that. We see the law. We, we, sometimes we're convicted by it sometimes we're really irritated by it and sometimes I hate to say it you know what we do we try to twist it and manipulate it so we don't feel guilty about it or we can excuse ourselves from keeping it do you desire God's word more than food more than money do you come on do you do you desire the, the word like a newborn babe desires milk? Come on. Do you? Do you? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Come on. Come on. Do you, have you hidden his word in his heart that you might not sin against thee? How many scriptures do you have memorized? Do you love it? Do you desire it? Do you pursue it? Come on. Is God's word the most important thing in your life? Come on. That's the way it's supposed to be because you're saved. Now anyone's even remotely honest would be like, man, I don't. I don't. That I'm I feel condemned by this. And I would be like, I feel condemned right there with you. I feel condemned with you. And I've been preaching the scriptures for a, a good portion of my entire adult life and broadcasting about the scriptures. And I still would say I fall way short of this. I desire and hunger things far more than God's word sometimes. But you know what I can do? Then I can say, Oh, the law is so convicting. Oh, but praise God for the gospel because Christ loved the word of the father. It was his meat to do the will of the father. He loved God. He desired God. He said, not my will, but your will be done. He did all of these things and he kept them for me. And in Christ, I do fulfill all of this. That's where I rejoice in. Now, yes, yes, there's a part of me I agree as a saved person, I'm going to be like, man, that's God's word. That's God's law. Yes, I want to keep it. And yes, I do. I do. There's a part of you that you do love it. But at the very same time, there's a part of you that rejects it and resents it and hates it. Because in many cases, it's going to tell you that you can't do what you want to do.
1: But who, who does that? A regenerate heart does that. And then you come to an unregenerate heart and says, let me tell you how you can be liberated from your bondage to self. And the unregenerate heart says, but I don't want to be liberated from bondage to self. I love me. I love me first.
0: And guess what? People sitting in the church who are regenerate, they love themselves first too. See, this is so, it creates this dichotomy that is just utter it, it, it obliterates this the the true dichotomy that exists. It'll obli- there is a true. Well, I mean, let I me mean, state it this way. It creates a dichotomy. It de- creates a distinction that doesn't exist. Let me state it that way. There, there. It creates a distinction that on one side here is lost people and they're like, I love self and I I I I'm going to do what I want. But saved people are like, oh, I don't love self. I'm not going to do what I want. That's. That distinction, it, obliter- it, it, it creates a distinction that doesn't exist. In reality, that distinction is obliterated. And the reality is, we, but bo- we, lost people love themselves, say people love themselves. Lost people want what they want, say people want what they want. And time and time again, we demonstrate that we're just like everyone else. As much as we want to deny that, as much as we want to claim, state, no, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. That is true positionally. It is not true. Practically, 2,000 years of church history verifies what I'm saying, unless you're going to go tell me that nobody has been saved in 2,000 years. And all these people who act like, no, 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 no. I'm so different. Oh, you're good at cleaning up the outside of that tomb. You're good at cleaning up the outside of that cup. But come on now, when the cameras aren't rolling, when people aren't around, oh, let's get a camera inside of you. Let's see what's going on inside your heart and your mind, what you desire, what you feel, what you truly love. And I guarantee you, it won't look anywhere like you want to present that it does.
1: And he's going to keep saying that unless God reaches into his heart and takes away his heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. And then he will say thank you.
0: There it is. He's borrowing from the Old Testament. That whole remove a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh... That is dealing with Israel. That is the new covenant given to Israel, that there will come a time that Israel's heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh, and then they will obey God. And we take that and make it about us. Well, if you make it about us, then ladies and gentlemen, we should be sinless. Oh, wait, we're not. Hmm. Oh, yeah, we still have a heart of stone. We still do. We still have a sinful nature. And to say that we don't, you're delusional. You're literally, you are a self deceived person. And you have to clothe yourself in robes of self righteousness to convince yourself that you're something that everyone else knows you're not. Sometimes those people who come across so self righteous and so godly, so judgmental, acting like nobody else is saved. <laughs> yeah. All you need to do if they have if if they go to your church and they have kids, just talk to their kids. You'll find out a lot of things they don't want anybody to know. Cause the kids see mom and dad at home. Oh, wait, wait, wait till their kids are teenagers and the teenager starts spilling the, what's really going on in the home. And then those self-righteous ones that are clothed and, and all their own righteousness. Yeah. The facade starts to crumble. It may not crumble now. It may take five years. It may take 10 years, but sooner or later, you're like, what, what happened? What happened? I thought you were so godly and holy and, and you were all, no, you, you had the same sinful nature as everyone else in this church had. You're just better at covering it up, but see, he he creates this idea, or he, he and I and I am very apologetic that I kind of messed that up at the, uh, just a few minutes ago. I said he obliterates the dichotomy, he obliterates the distinction. No, he creates this distinction. He creates this massive distinction that over here are lost people. And look over there. There's all the saved people. They're wonderful. They're holy. They're perfect. They're righteous. Look at them. They're so much better than those really bad people over there. But that distinction is made up. It's a Disney version of Christianity. The reality is they're lost sinners who reject the gospel and they're saved sinners who embrace the gospel and are saved by an imputed righteousness, but they're very much still sinners who struggle. They may have changed their mind about sin. They may have changed their mind about the gospel, but they still possess the same sinful nature. And guess what happens in the church? There is sin. There's pornography. There's fornication, there's homosexuality, there's adultery, there's covetousness, there's greed, there's pride, there's bearing false witness, there's gossip, there's slander, there's stabbing people in the back. There's a lack of love and compassion. And forget uh, I'm, I'm talking about myself. Yeah, I, I wasn't talking about you, so don't get a fa- I was talking about myself.
1: God has to do the initial regeneration. We don't, we don't operate, we don't twiddle any knobs, we don't operate any levers to get God to regenerate us. When we are, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians 2, when we are slaves to sin, as it says in Romans chapter 6, we are stuck there unless God unilaterally, on his own, speaks the word and we are quickened. So when Jesus, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the the dead, that resurrection was not a cooperative effort. Jesus wasn't pulling and Lazarus pushing. Lazarus didn't contribute anything whatever to the resuscitation of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He didn't do anything. And Jesus spoke the word. And Lazarus came to life, and then Lazarus did something, then he came out of the tomb. He came out of the tomb just as Jesus wanted him to do, just as you love your neighbor after you're, after you're born again, you love your neighbor, and after you're born again, you want to know how to love your neighbor better, and so you're hungry for God's word. But before that, you're going to hate all of it. You're going to hate the command to rise up and be forgiven. You're going to hate all of it until you're actually in possession of a new life, a new
0: See, see, and again, I apologize for earlier saying he obliterates the distinction or the dichotomy. He literally, he creates this distinction, this dichotomy that it's it's just a figment of his own imagination because it doesn't exist. When you become safe, boom, you love your neighbor. Give me a break. I can't, I don't even know. I can tell you stories of how Christians, just the things I've experienced. I could read emails from it. Now, see, here's what I would say. Anytime when I point any of those stories out, what people do, well, they're just not saved. They're just not saved. They're not saved. That's our go-to. Anytime someone does something that doesn't fit this beautiful little distinction and dichotomy, we just immediately say they're not saved. How? Did, you're not God. You can't say that. If they believe in Jesus Christ, who are you to come along and call their salvation? into question. You're not God. But see, it protects your little theology. Your theology is... Oh, no, no, no. See, save people. So, so, we'll love their neighbor. So, anytime someone, anyone who claims to be a Christian who doesn't demonstrate true love towards you, you just immediately throw them out of the kingdom of God? You may want to start with yourself. Oh, but I could go forever on the things that have been done to me in the name of Christ. I could, I could tell you things that happened to me the the day that my, I got the call to go to the hospital because my mother was in the hospital, basically dead. I mean, she was going to be dead within a couple. Within you know, they had to wait what three days to run the brain scan before they could legally declare her dead. But all practical purposes, she was dead. I just basically leave the hospital, and the next I'm getting chewed out because I didn't cut the grass at the church, even though they knew my mother was in the hospital dying. Oh, I could go on and on and on and on. I can tell you what happened after my, within a couple of days, someone sent me an email that I received on the day my father died and they were mad at me because I didn't respond to their email. Even though they knew my father died, they wanted to argue. They didn't email me to ask me how I was doing. They wanted to rebuke me because I didn't respond to an email. Oh, I could go on and on. The wonderful love Christian show. They show up and they, they oh, uh, how Christians, ugh, weak. I could go on and on and on, just on and on and on. They don't care. They, they over and over. Selfishness, care only about themselves. They always think they're right. Everyone, it's just, it's, it, uh, give me a break. Oh, when you become saved, you just immediately love your neighbor. And I guess you immediately love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. That's ridiculous. You know what happens when I become saved? I become positionally perfect and positionally. I love my neighbor and love God. I become a new creature positionally because I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. You know what happens to me practically? Oh yeah. I'm still a sinner. Oh, I've changed my mind about what sin is. I've changed my mind about God. And yes, I want to pursue and I want to do what's right, but The things I want to do, I'm not going to do. And the things I don't want to do, I'm going to keep doing because I still have a sinful nature. So with my mind, I'm going to serve the law of God. But with my flesh, I'm going to continue to serve the law of sin. Oh, the Apostle Paul said that in Romans chapter 7. But those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Even though I'm going to fall short. Because I still possess the sinful nature. And I will possess that sinful nature until glorification but he wants to create a dichotomy, a distinction, boom, that's black and white. But you can even open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians and it's not so black and white. Because even believers are being referred to as carnal, fleshly.
1: new heart. So... For the regenerate, everything from God is sweeter than the honeycomb. All of it is grace. For the unregenerate, the whole thing, is the stench of death. Everything is the stench of death, including the good news of Christ on the cross. Including the good news of Christ on the cross. All of it is law and condemnation. Now, when we are held up against the law of God, when we are held up against the law of God and measured by it, the measurement is always constant. It does not show partiality, and it does not adjust anything on the basis of how we feel. The law is a constant, and this is what I began with. The law is like math. It doesn't care how you feel. It is true that sinners are a tangled mess of spiritual bruises, but that is simply a symptom of the problem. It is not the problem. The problem is not how you feel about your sins. The problem is how God feels about your sins. Do you you see that? The issue is not, I'm sad, you know, I can't break this bad habit of mine and it makes me sad. That's not, that's not what you're saved from. That's a symptom of what you need to be saved from. What you need to be saved from is is the fact that God is looking at you in your sin and God is unhappy with your sin. See, that's the problem. It's not I'm, I'm unhappy with this recurring problem of envy or I'm unhappy with this recurring problem of lust or I'm uh, unhappy with this recurring uh, problem of undue ambition. Yeah, it's good that you're unhappy with it, but that's not the problem. The problem is that God hates your envy. God hates your lust. God hates what you're doing. See, and the wrath of God is what we need to be saved from. And the Bible teaches us that when we are when we are saved, we are saved by God from what? We're saved by God from God. We're saved by the Father from the Father. The thing we're saved from is the wrath of God. We're not saved from our own feelings of inadequacy. Right? You're, not, you're, you're not saved from your, the plaguey sense of your own felt needs. It's true that sinners are a tangled mess of spiritual bruises, bruises but that's simply a symptom. It's not the problem. The objective problem is objective wrath. And this is why the gospel, as it is being proclaimed to our generation, is uh, so frequently falling to the floor. It's not, people are not pierced to the heart. In the Bible, when the gospel is proclaimed, it says, and they were convicted, and they were pierced to the heart. And and we don't really have the... Uh, The ceremony, the ritual that occurs in many evangelical churches of having an invitation where people come forward In the Bible, there are are occasions where the the gospel is preached and people come forward But the people coming forward usually have rocks in their hands and they're gnashing their teeth And, you know, Stephen is done preaching and they rush upon him They're they're coming forward, but it's it's not what we do what ha- what happens is the gospel penetrates the gospel is uh, the gospel reveals that our fundamental problem is our relationship to God
0: okay now see here's where no The gospel doesn't reveal that problem. The law reveals that problem. The law reveals, the law condemns. The gospel tells you Christ has done it for you and died for you. So now he's using language that describes law to describe gospel. So once again, he's obliterating the law gospel distinction and guess what is happening? The gospel is being rewritten. This is exactly what that CFW Walther would say would happen, is that once you obliterate the distinction between law and gospel, this is the thing he is obliterating. He's creating a dichotomy, a, a distinction that does not meet reality, but he's obliterating the distinction between law and gospel. He's not making a distinction between law and gospel. He's trying to make a distinction that doesn't quite exist in reality between lost and saved people, but then he's destroying the clear distinction between law and gospel, and now he's describing the effect of the gospel, which is really the effect of the law. The law creates wrath and anger and convicts and condemns. And, and and then that's when you need the gospel, depending on if you're broken and convicted by it versus now if you're enraged by it, well, then you need more law until you're broken by it. But Once again, I just want you to see if you've been listening to our hundred plus hours on the teaching of law and gospel, you see, he just immediately started using law language to describe the gospel. That's exactly what happens.
1: It's not what we think of God. It's what God thinks of us and why. And the only, the only way that God can think of us in a pleasant, kind, kind, wholesome wonderful way is when he's thinking of us in christ if he is thinking of us if he's viewing us in christ then we can be received welcome we're welcome in the beloved we're welcome in christ but no other way so when we stand before the tribunal of god's law our trial there is deliberate our trial in the presence of god is deliberate it is careful It is meticulous, it is clinical, and it's altogether just. When a sinner stands before God and heaven and earth have fled away, everything vanishes and the naked sinner is standing before God with nothing in his mouth but excuses that won't work. When that moment comes, you're not dealing with a moment of anger because the trial is calm. The trial is judicious. The evaluation is judicious. This is what I mean when I refer to cold law. This is cold law. It's just simply the facts. Let's roll out the facts. Let's state the facts. The sentence, however, is not cold and clinical. The trial is cold and clinical, but the sentence is not. Nahum 1.6 says this, who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. That's what the sentence is like.
0: I want to remind you that we're like 40 minutes into a sermon that's supposedly about Galatians 2.16. He read it He made a few observations in regards to it. He made a few observations in regards to context, a few observations about the text itself, and then he abandoned the text completely, utterly. Nothing to do with Galatians 2.16 in any way, shape, or form. None. I mean, I... I, I, he has so far removed this from Galatians 2.16. I don't even know how the two shall ever meet. I, I, I don't know. Other than two, he, he's, I, I, he's done everything else other than that. So just so that you know that that's, uh, you, you can deter. But, but some people would say, Oh, we studied Galatians 2.16. It was a great sermon. Again, I, I would want to actually study Galatians 2.16. Now, if I was going to preach this, what I would say is today we're going to talk about the problem. Instead of of saying we're going to preach on Galatians 2.16, what I would have done is today we're going to talk about law and gospel and the reason the law and gospel hermeneutic doesn't work. And then, because that's really his thesis has been law and gospel hermeneutic doesn't work. He's tried to demonstrate why it doesn't work, even though he didn't really do that. And he's tried to put in its place that the way to destroy the distinction between law and gospel is the human heart. And then he literally then went into describing the gospel when it really, he should have been describing the law, which utterly then I, I, so if his thesis is the law and gospel hermeneutic doesn't work, he's not even, he's not proven his thesis and he's not, he's not given us anything to put in its place that's even makes any sense.
1: John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, But he that, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Notice that the wrath of God doesn't come to him. It says the wrath of God remains. So it's not like you've got a bunch of neutral people lined up, and some believe in Jesus and some don't believe in Jesus, and the people that believe in Jesus have salvation come, and the people who don't believe in Jesus have wrath come. No, it's everybody is under the wrath already. Everybody is under condemnation already. All of us are in Adam. We are a rebellious world. We are a rebellious planet. We are a a rebellious nation. We are a rebellious generation. And all of us are entailed in this. This is what we are by nature. Paul says, we together with the unbelievers were by nature objects of wrath. This is what we are. And if you believe in Jesus, if God gives you the grace to believe in him, then you are extricated from that, you're taken from that condition of wrath. If you don't, then the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God abides on him, as it says in John three, thirty six. And this is just where the gospel comes in. Our evaluation by the law of God is deliberate and judicious. When the law if
0: you think about it in a roundabout way, he's kind of circled back, he's kind of trying to make his own distinction between law and gospel. even th- he's saying that that's not a hermeneutic because he just said there's the law, this is where the gospel comes in. So has he is he not making his own distinction? Uh, I, is his, is his thesis? Law and gospel hermeneutic is bad, but let listen to me. Forty five minutes into the sermon, make my own distinction between law and gospel. I I I I I I, I don't know.
1: Law evaluates us. That is deliberate, cold, clinical analytical is just as judicious as it gets. It is also terrifying because at the end of the process, the sentence is a fireball. The sentence is a fireball. The trial is a place where every mouth is stopped. No one has anything to say. Everybody is. this is, this is an overwhelming case against me. I was presented with many, multiple opportunities to believe in Jesus, and I didn't want to. I hid from him every way I could. Sometimes I hid behind a hymnal. Sometimes I hid in church. Sometimes I hid in bars. Sometimes I hid in multiple relations. I hid in every kind of sin. I was running from God. And at that moment in the, in the trial... When heaven and earth have fled away, you have nothing to say because, because it will be plain and evident that that is precisely what you were doing. You were running from God and did not want him to have anything to do with you. But the sentence is a fireball. And yet there is no grounds for complaint. Every mouth will be stopped before him. And here is where the wisdom of God overwhelms all the pretended wisdom of man. The reason there can be a hot gospel is because in the cross of Christ, the hot wrath of God was poured out upon Christ. So it's not, it's not that you have non-believers who experience the fireball and Christians who, who go scot-free. That's not, that's not the way it works. It's not like non-Christians have to die for their sins and Christians don't have to die for their sins. No. God is holy. God is righteous. And every sinner must die. What God has done in the gospel is he's given us an opportunity to die in a particular place in Christ where resurrection is possible. You either die in a place where there's no resurrection or you die in a place where there is resurrection and Christ is the place where there's resurrection. It's death in both places. It's death for sin in both places. That's what it means when Jesus, when it says Christ died for our sins. It's not, Christ did not die over there so that you might live over there. Christ died so that you might die he was buried so that you might be buried. He was raised from the dead so that you might be raised from the dead. And he ascended into the heavenly places so that you might go there with him and in him. And this is why in our worship service today, this is why we are in the heavenly places in Christ. If you look at a book like the book of Ephesians, the saints there are in two places. They're in Ephesus. He writes to the saints in Ephesus. And then he tells them, the, them repeatedly throughout the whole book they are in Christ, in the beloved, in him in christ they're in the heavenly realms you are in ephesus you're in the heavenly realms you are in moscow and you're in the heavenly realms you you are seated seated in a folding chair and you are seated in christ at the right hand of god the father where there's an endless torrent of pleasure forevermore so the reason there can be a hot gospel Is because in the cross of Christ, the hot wrath of God was poured out upon Christ and he took all of it in. He took all of it upon himself. The word propitiation refers to the fist of the Father striking the Son so that you might be struck down in him and raised again to life in him. That is the gospel. So if you are looking to the cross, if you look to Jesus, you are looking to him so that you might be identified with him. And when you are identified with him on the cross, what you see there is the fist of the father. The fist of the father strikes the son and he he strikes down. And crucifies and deal, deals with every sin you've ever committed and every sin you've ever thought about committing, every sin you're going to commit, all of it was gathered to Jesus and God struck it down in His holy fury. That's what God did. And then the next thing you see is the hand of that same Father raising you to life again. That's death burial and resurrection and that's gospel that's not that's not an, a cheap grace, that's not easy believism, that's, this is not something where you say oh Jesus died 2000 years ago and that has some mysterious connection and, and if I'm vaguely sorry for being kind of a jerk sometimes that's not repentance, that's not faith what you have to do is close with Christ, you have to close with Christ on the cross, you have to close with Christ in the tomb close with Christ in the resurrection and close with the Christ who is raised to the right hand of the father the word propitiation means okay this is so
0: far from galatians two sixteen. i don't even know where he's going but what does that mean you have to close you have to close with christ on the cross close with christ in the tomb close with christ what it cl- i have to close with christ what does it mean if I just believe, no, it's not true repentance. It's not true faith. So it's like, hey, Christ died for you. Put your faith in him. But what, but, 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 but it's not easy believism. It's not cheap grace. You got to close. Is he, do I have to close with him? What, do, I don't know what that means. What do I mean? To, I've got to close with him. What, do, what does that mean? I got I got to close with him. What, what does that mean? How do I do that? How do I do this? And and clearly repentance is not just changing your mind. So I got to change. Like he he's he won't just tell me he he's like, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do to be saved here. I'm supposed to believe in Jesus. But no, 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 no. It's not something that simple. I got to close. I got to close with. I don't. What does that mean? What does it mean? I got to close. I got to close. I got to close. Does anybody know what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to do something here. I'm supposed to do something. I need to know what I'm supposed to do.
1: Absorbing or t- uh, diverting or turning aside wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins, John says. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The death of Jesus was... Uh, the point where the fury of God was focused in a laser-like way, imagine all the, all the flames of a fiery hell concentrated in a laser and landing in one place on one person and dealing with all of it, dealing with all sin, dealing with it in, in a once-for-all kind of way. And so he is the propitio- propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We can't be saved by trying to be better. We can't be saved by trying to be a good little Christian girl, good little Christian boy, good Christian man, good Christian woman, because we're not, right? We're not good. We, no no one is good, but God alone. And if we want to be good.
0: Okay. So we're not good before salvation. Are we not good after salvation? Look, Oh, this is maddening. This is maddening because we're almost done with the sermon. I I still don't understand Galatians 2.16. And at this point, he's so confounded. I still don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to believe, but it's more than just easy believism. I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to make sure I've got the right repentance. But he hasn't really defined what the right repentance is. I got to close, close with Jesus. He hasn't told me what that is. And I got to do more than be a good little christian because there's no one good but 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 obviously i can be good is he getting ready to tell me i can be good i, I don't
1: know if we're hung, if blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness well where's the well where's the food turn to christ if you if you want anything to be put right In your life, you have to look to Christ. And you have to look to Christ in a way that wants to close with him. You you cannot look to Christ as an, oh, yeah, he's a historical figure. You want to look to Christ with faith, in faith. And when you look to Christ believing, he receives you. I have to close with, I don't know what that means. I
0: have to close, I have to close, I have to close with him. I have to close. I have to do something. I have to. Now, remember, supposedly. No, 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 no. This it's all a monergistic work, but he's clearly making it a synergistic work in salvation. I've got to do something. I've got to close with him. It's not just believing. I got to believe the right way. I got to. He's, he's putting 9000 qualifiers into this, but he's not so clarifying the qualifiers. I still don't know what I'm supposed to, do to be saved. I gotta close with Jesus. If anybody can tell me what I'm supposed to do to close with Jesus, how do I close with Jesus? Jesus died for me. Jesus paid for my sins. Jesus was the propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God on my behalf. He paid for my past, present, and future sins. But I'm still condemned unless I close with Jesus. I gotta close with Jesus. I'm, he's got like five minutes. I'm hoping he's going to tell me what that means to close with Jesus, because I really need to know what I have to do to supposedly close with Jesus.
1: No one in the history of the world has ever come to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, looking to him, trusting in him alone, and been turned away. Not one person has ever been turned away and it doesn't matter how bad you've been it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter how much light you sinned against it doesn't matter how many times your friends tried to warn you none of that matters are are are, have you committed adultery in christ god doesn't care are you a thief in christ god doesn't care he he caused the blood of his his own son to be shed so that he might not care about things like that and remain holy Do you see that? God wanted, it says in Romans that God wanted to be just and the one who justifies. He wanted to be just and the one who justifies. The cross is what enables him to not care about your sin and remain just. Because Christ died and because you died in him and are raised to life in him, God can look at you as though you had never done anything wrong in your life. And that's what you mean when you say, in Jesus' name, amen. That's, that's how you're praying. That's what you're lifting up to him. God, I can't even thank you for the pancakes if Jesus had not died for me. And in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the pancakes. Thank you for breakfast. Thank you for the, in Jesus' name, amen. Because outside of that, it's the fireball. It's either in Christ or outside. It's either the utter, outer darkness or it's pleasures forevermore. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's cold law and hot gospel. Our Father and God, we thank you for your goodness to us.
0: I, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what to do. I, 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 that is the end. I, I, I thought we had like five more minutes. I, I'm supposed to close with Jesus. I don't know what that means. He wants to say that there is no distinction. We don't follow the law gospel distinction, but by the end he's trying to make a distinction between law and gospel. But he wants to make the gospel law. I, I'm, I don't, I don't understand any. And that's supposedly a sermon on Galatians 2.16. I didn't even understand Galatians 2.16. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I do not know what that is. I don't really know what the thesis of the sermon is, other than the thesis of the sermon is law gospel distinction is a bad hermeneutic because of some straw men that he created. The correct way to know the law gospel distinction is to look to the human heart. And in the human heart, a saved, a depraved heart, a lost person will hate the law. The saved person will love the law because the saved person will be able to keep the law, I guess. And they're going to love it. It doesn't really go into anything. But then if I'm truly saved, to be truly saved, I've got to do a bunch of things, right? I can't just believe I've got to repent the right way but it doesn't really say what the right way it is to repent. I got to believe, but believe seems to be more than just believing. I mean, I've got to really believe, but he doesn't really quanti- qual- qualify what that means. And I got to close with Jesus, which he said like five times, and I still don't even know what that means. But but then he clearly makes a distinction between that and the law. But I <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, that clarified the Christian life for me. I I don't know what to say. I, I, I don't know what that was. I literally don't know what that was. Now, it's stupid in one way for me to criticize it because – He's Douglas Wilson. He's a well-known, world-renowned theologian. His church, I don't even know how many people go to that church. It's got power. It's got money. It's got position. It's got prestige. I'm a nobody in the middle of nowhere. I don't even have enough support to support this podcast financially. Okay. So, so I'm nobody. So I, I know, I know that. But I just know that after listening to that, I have no understanding, literally, of what the gospel is. I don't really understand the law. I don't really understand what it means, how to be saved. I don't really understand any of it. But I bet you millions of people listen to that and thought, wow, I understand. I don't remember the sermon was supposed to be the text was supposed to be. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But he immediately turned that into, remember, even when he read the verse, that to be justified by faith means I have to surrender everything to Jesus, but he didn't tell me what I'm supposed to surrender. And then we find out later that I'm supposed to believe, but I got to really believe, but he didn't tell me how I know if I really believe. And then I got to repent, but he didn't tell me what, but there's a right repentance and a wrong repentance, but he didn't tell me what that is. And I have to close with Jesus, which he still never even identified. So I don't even know what it means to believe, much less... Why he got into the whole distinction between law and go- gospel. I, <laughs> to the person who emailed me, I don't know if this review was of any benefit because I'm more confused than when I started off. I, I, I do not understand. I do not understand. So you can email me your understanding of this sermon To newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, that's newsif at yahoo.com. I apologize that this Wednesday evening turned into basically, we've done two hours of sermon, well, we've done probably almost two and a half to three hours of sermon review today. Um, But you know what? It's finished, which is good. And uh, hopefully you found something somewhat beneficial and edifying in it. It fits perfectly with our series on law and gospel, so that's where this will be uploaded to. And uh, if, you, if you haven't been listening to the series over a 100 hours of teaching, trying to make an argument that there is an actual distinction between law and gospel, and when you obliterate that distinction— well, then your gospel starts sounding like the law and your law starts sounding like gospel. And then I guess you can then actually, if you obliterate that distinction, you can create a fake distinction that lost people always hate the law and save people, always love it and desire it and, and all these things that are just not true, not even a little bit newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com everyone have a great night God bless